Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. This is episode 215. I am your host, as always, Cameron English. Sad to say I'm not joined by Dr. Kevin Fulta. He is about to welcome his baby girl into the world. So the next few weeks, it's going to be me and a very special guest host that I'm excited to uh, invite to the show. I've got Dr. Liza Dunn with me. And Liza is one of the first people I go to when I have a question about toxicology or vaccines or pesticides because she's absurdly smart and she knows this stuff inside and out. So if you're not familiar with her, I'm excited for you to meet her. Um, Liza, just introduce yourself briefly for, for folks that don't know who you are. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Liza Dunn. I'm an emergency medicine physician and a medical toxicologist, and I am the uh, medical affairs lead for Bayer Crop Sciences. And a lot of people say, how on earth did an emergency doctor wind up in <laughs> agriculture? Well, I kind of took the scenic route, but um, what I was doing was I was work doing a lot of relief work, and I found that what I was seeing in patients were the results of malnutrition and insect-borne illness. And I realized that um, some of the things that um, are important to agriculture are also important to public health. And a really good food supply um, is really important to uh, prevent malnutrition and access to modern agricultural techniques helps do that. And uh, pesticides are actually critical for public health, which we can talk about some other time, but um, it's a really important concept that people don't think about. Yes, it's very, very important. I'd say it's up there, probably in the top five things of the last century that have uh, prevented a lot of suffering and a lot of death and fed a lot of people. And uh, I know that drives the activist groups wild. So I like to say it over and over. It's like pesticides save lives. <laughs> okay. That's true. It's critically important for public health. And um, yes, you're right. They are one of the cornerstones of the 20th century, um, you know, improvement in, in health and well-being for people. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Carrie Gillum will see this and break out in hives. So I get that that's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, as always, we've got uh, three stories to talk about. So let's let's jump right into these. So first up, we're going to talk about the possibility of ice cream being good for you, which um, is is fascinating, and it surprisingly drives a lot of people crazy to talk about that. <laughs> so ice cream may be good for you. Next up, we're talking about anti-vaxxers uh, who base their rejectionism of the COVID shots on a study claiming that the vaccines killed almost 300,000 people. Now, the study's been retracted, and we're going to talk about why that happened. And then finally, and along the same theme, we're going to talk about people who are afraid of all sorts of chemicals that are all around us in very minute quantities. They can't possibly do any harm, and then they turn around and have a cocktail uh, after dinner. <laughs> So we're going to talk about all this stuff. Um, let's jump into this first story, though. This was originally published in The Atlantic by uh, an historian named David Johns. And this is a fascinating story. It begins with uh, a graduate student, or excuse me, someone working on their PhD at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and this gentleman, as he was getting ready to defend his, his thesis, he discovered <laughs> in this data set that he had gathered that um, ice cream seemed to reduce uh, people's risk of diabetes and obesity. And so wow. 
<laughs> so he said, he said, this can't be right. I forgot to carry a one somewhere. So he went back and, and, and uh, John says this in the story, uh, this, this scientist threw every statistical trick he could to, to Kung Fu this thing out, right? This is, this, this has to be a mistake, right? Ice cream can't reduce your risk of diabetes. This is heresy, <laughs> but he couldn't get rid of it. And as he did more research, he found that there were previous studies in the last 20 years or so that had found the same effect that people that eat, I believe it's a half a cup of ice cream a day had a reduced risk of the, you know, various metabolic conditions. And the other angle, the other aspect of the story that's really fascinating is that the same association has been found over the years for yogurt. Now yogurt has a health halo as it's, as it's called, right? It's a, it's a magical, healthy food. It's from a different part of the world. And uh, even when you add sugar to it, like they did for the U.S. market, it still has these health benefits. The media loves to talk about it. Uh, uh, public health people love to talk about it. It just feels right to say that yogurt is good for you. So even though the data was more or less the same for these two very different foods, I guess they're not all that different, but you know what I'm saying, right? For these two different foods, the data was basically the same. But as time went on, um, people wanted to say yogurt is good for you, and they didn't want to talk about ice cream. And it's just so funny because because when he started out defending his thesis, right, th this is the right approach is to say, I'm going to try to disprove my hypothesis. That's what good science is. You, you, right, you find holes in your, in your theory, and then that's how you verify it is if you can't debunk it, then you probably have, a, you know, some good science there. Um, but over time, it became, well, let's just not talk about this. It's probably reverse causation, which Liza can, can talk about in a minute. Um, and that's that's really the, the essence of the story. There's lots of details we can get into. But I, the takeaway for me, Liza, was that science isn't strictly data driven. People come to their research with assumptions, with biases. Um, and sometimes if if you feel threatened by the data that you've uncovered, per, you know, it's potentially a risk to your career. Like you don't want to be the guy at Harvard who's like, yeah, ice cream's good for you. You know, I'm the, you know, sign up for my newsletter. <laughs> that's not this is not a good career. Not a good career track for a scientist. Um, but the lesson for us, I think, is to be uh, skeptical as you approach a press release for a study or you approach a CNN article about the latest health fad or whatever it is. Um, you have to be aware of these things if you really want to understand what's going on under the hood, so to speak. But what are your thoughts on this as a physician? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I was delighted to re read about this study. And I went, then I was actually went and looked at the actual study. And I was really excited to see that there was a statistically significant reduction in insulin resistance in people who were fed dessert items, which largely were ice cream. Um, and I thought, wow, if we could do a double-blind randomized controlled study on that, you could... <laughs> You could have a blockbuster product um, to, <laughs> to, to, to demonstrate that there was benefit to eating ice cream. Now, um, once again, because I really like ice cream, I also really um, like chocolate, and I look at chocolate as a vegetable because yeah. it comes from a bean. So this fits <laughs> into my perspective on the world. I think ice cream is good, and I think chocolate is good. Now, that said that could get taken completely out of proportion. And we know that, you know, the dose makes the poison. So too much ice cream and too much chocolate, you might um, get diabetes or, uh, uh, you know, obesity or metabolic disease from. So you have to, you know, everything in moderation is probably the right attitude. Now that said, in this article, there was um, one man, this is anecdotal evidence, which sort of adds to the weight of epidemiology. One person who I want to say ate 
um, oh, uh, hundreds or ice cream for a hundred days or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ate an extraordinary amount of ice cream and top it off with booze. And I, I think, <laughs> I think he actually lost weight. And he said yeah. it, he said that it was the worst experiment that he'd ever participated in. Yeah. But he did prove a point anecdotally. So now we have a little bit of epidemiologic evidence, and we have a little bit of um, a little bit of a- anecdotal evidence to support my confirmation bias that, ooh, I like ice cream, right? Um, but once again, anecdotal evidence is not scientific evidence. Epidemiology points to a hypothesis, but it does is an association is not causation. So we've got to be very careful about the claims that we make uh, based on associations. What, what's interesting about this study also is that there were four or five other studies previously uh, conducted that showed the same thing, and that didn't quite fit with what the authors wanted to suggest, and so they just <laughs> ignore the ignore that data, which is not helpful either. So um, I think that one, um, everything in moderation. Two, uh, enjoy your food. Um, don't don't get panicked about all these claims of certain foods being superfoods and curing cancer, and other foods being uh, really terrible for you and, you know, causing cancer and a whole variety of diseases. Um, Epidemiologic nutrition is not always um, the most rigorous um, uh, field, although it can be interesting. And if there are, you know, if there's a study uh, suggestion that there's some benefit in some kind of food, um, that's, that's probably worth exploring more. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. It, it's it's interesting too, is that the the field, and this is from some epidemiologists. There's I didn't know this until recently, but there's this sort of debate going on within the field. With there's people saying, you know, well, I know how to do these kind of cross-sectional associational studies, so let's keep doing that. And there's other people saying we are we are publishing ourselves into irrelevance with these dumb studies that don't bear, you know, you can't replicate them. They don't. They clearly don't. Um, reflect what's happening in the real world. And that's just so funny to me because these studies, at, le- at least once a week for the, for as long as I've been alive, there's been a, you know, grapes prevent Alzheimer's, uh, you know, um, fast food causes Alzheimer's, like all of these goofy associations. And they, and it's just, and you, the, you pick up this in the article, like they're trying to say like, what would the mechanism be? Like how, how could ice cream prevent diabetes? That doesn't make any sense. You know, and in reality, it's it's just like they're they're so obsessed with tinkering with these little variables, and you're like, dude, it's just like it's just a dairy food. There's some fat, there's some protein, there's some carb. You know, obviously, this is not the the foundation of your diet, but it's okay to have it. And I, at one point, John says, you know, it could be that you have obese people who are cutting back on their caloric intake, and they're still eating a little ice cream, and that's why you're finding this effect. So all that to say, chill out. You can have a Big Mac, you can have ice cream, but just eat a variety of foods and don't be a glutton. That seems to be the best advice, I think. Yes, gluttony is one of the deadly sins. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably it's probably put there just so you uh, can do everything in moderation. Um, so I think it's good advice. I think it's good advice. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing I should I should mention is that this study, as almost all of these studies are, was based on what's called a food frequency questionnaire which is just basically a sheet of paper with a bunch of different foods. And if you participate in one of these studies, 
you're supposed to write down every day, you know, I had this much white bread, I had this much applesauce, these many strawberries, et cetera, et cetera. And these are infamously unreliable. And they've done studies of these kind of studies. And what they find <laughs> is that people lie because there's, there's this, this desirability bias. You want to reflect, especially to, if it's like a doctor could, you know, performing this research, you want them to think, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I eat well and I exercise and I go to church and I give money to, to charity and right. People just lie about this stuff. So that's part of the problem. The other problem is that it's hard to remember what you ate even just a day ago. Right. And just to give you an example, I, there's another physician I work with named Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein. And I don't know why he did this could have been just morbid curiosity, but he participated in one of these studies and he came back and he said, there's just no way that this is reliable. You know, he's like, I've been a physician for decades. I was trying to follow this very, very carefully. And I could not, I knew I was not accurately reporting how much I was eating. And part of the problem is that they don't tell you what a serving is. Like what's a serving of white bread? Well, it probably depends on which, which bread you're eating and so forth. So all that to say, at least to me, this field seems like a total mess. And this story really illustrates that. And doctors are, patients are notoriously scared to tell doctors how much they eat, drink, any of that kind of stuff. And so they often don't tell the truth. And this is a story that I like. Back in my rock and roll days, I used to be a heavy smoker. I smoked three packs a day. And so when I would go to patients and say, how much do you smoke? They would look at me and they'd go, oh, uh, you know, only a pack a day. And I'd say, when are you going to quit? And their response was, well, doc, it's really, really hard to quit. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I used to smoke three packs a day. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we don't smoke that much. And I was like, wait, you can quit. And it's funny when you actually establish that kind of relationship, they're bound to be much more kind of honest with you. The other thing, the other takeaway from this is that uh, often in the emergency department, you know, a drug user will come in. And when they come into the emergency department, they'll say, oh, I used heroin today. Well, you know that they're probably not going to be lying to you about the cocaine that they used if they're being that honest. So there, yeah. there are degrees of honesty, but in sort of anonymous uh, reporting kind of thing, you always want to shine the best light on yourself. And so often people will uh, confabulate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point about incentives. You know, when someone comes in and they've taken a potentially lethal drug, they're going to say, I took this much and it was this long ago. Please help me not die. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, if you eat six chocolate bars a day and you're in relatively good health, right? The incentive is, is exactly backwards. So all that to say, be skeptical as you see this stuff. Read this whole story. It's really, really insightful for, for all of these details, for all these reasons we're discussing. But let's move on to our, our next story. And this is interestingly, it's related in a lot of different ways. But we're talking about a story by Michael Hiltzak. It was published in the Los Angeles Times. And he's talking about a study that was published, I believe, last January. And it was published in a pretty reputable journal um, affiliated with the Nature Publishing Group, which is one of the big names in academic publishing. Um, and the study alleged that almost 300,000 people in the U.S. had died as a result of taking a COVID vaccine. Not the fact, not that they died after, but because they took it, they died as a result. And this is a massive number, right? I think I think the biggest number from the CDC was something like 17,000 people. So in that ballpark, right? And they didn't say, was it 19? 19,476. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, right down to the, to the sixth there. Okay. But CDC didn't say the vaccine caused these deaths. It's just that, you know, people got these these shots 
and then they died after the fact. They could have right gotten vaccinated at a Walgreens and then got hit by a bus. So that's yeah. that's the range of of possibilities you're talking about there. But the study said it's probably the vaccine that killed almost 300,000 people. And the problem with the study, which has now been retracted, is that um, his methodology was, well, I'm going to survey people and see what motivates them to get a, get a vaccine or not get a vaccine. And what he found, which is not really controversial at all, is that if you knew someone who got a very bad case of COVID, you were more inclined to get the vaccine because you saw how nasty it could be in those cases. Whereas if you knew somebody who got a vaccine and had an adverse reaction, you were disinclined, right? You're like, I don't think I want that vaccine, which makes perfect sense knowing what we know about human nature. Um, and th the economist who did this study, by the way, his name is uh, Skidmore. He's from the uh, Michigan State University, Mark Skidmore. And based on what people told him about the negative reactions that they saw in their friends, he extrapolated and said, okay, well, if we if we take these people as a sample representing the entire country, almost 300,000 people died as a result of this vaccine. Now, as you can imagine, when the study came out last January, it blew up on Twitter, right? The, the anti-vaccine groups, the people who are, who are skeptical or, or hesitant of the COVID shots, they're like, boom, this is exactly what we needed, right? But as the soon as- smoke. Yes, yes, right, right, right. But very quickly, a bunch of the people, a bunch of people in the science communication world said, no, uh, this is a this is a junk study. It was attacked very widely and very reasonably. I think David Gorski at Science Based Medicine did probably the most thorough takedown explaining what was wrong with it. But eventually the study had to be retracted. And it came out later that the editor of the journal was concerned about it. And then even the reviewers who looked at the article were concerned about it. But uh, their concerns I apparently were addressed. So, so Skidmore went back and adjusted some things. They said, okay, now we can publish this. Um, and obviously this is, this is not, this is not a reflection of reality again, like we were saying earlier, right? It, like it would be very apparent if that many people in the United States had died. Yes, that would be. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and the problem is, so the problem is that just, just because somebody has had a vaccine and dies within 30 days, it does not mean that there is an association with that vaccine. So back to our little ice cream analogy, right? So let's just say, so there are over 7,000 people who die in the United States every day. So let's just say that um, those 7,000 people um, over the next, or no, let's just say that over the next 30 days, a certain number of people die. So 210,000 people every month die in the United States. Chances are that a significant number of those people ate an ice cream cone somewhere in the interim, right? right. And they, they, they saw the ice cream cone study. They said, this is going to be really prevent me from dying and prevent me from having diabetes. It's going to be protective. So I'm going to eat an ice cream cone. And there's a significant percentage of those who probably died. Um, but there's no relationship between the ice cream cone ingestion and their and their uh, death. And this is the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a spurious uh, claim because you can't you you have to have the actual medical records in cause of death to be able to even uh, speculate on how the person died. So just because you saw an association between um, you know, uh, uh, the, a, an ice cream cone ingestion and death um, doesn't mean that it was causal. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I also think it's interesting, and you've had this experience because you've, you've debated some anti-vaccine folks, the biggest one being Steve Kirsch, who is, yes. he's been like, he's one of the anti-COVID vaccine guys. <laughs> so, 
But what, what they will do, because they're very smart, you know, not to take away, he's a sharp guy. What they will do is they know you're supposed to find a mechanism that, that could explain why the vaccine causes this. And so to use your ice cream example, we could go dig through the literature and I bet somewhere we could find a study of five people and we could say, look, these five people had ice cream and then maybe they, their, their diabetes wasn't properly diagnosed. So their blood sugar skyrocketed and then they fell into a coma and died. There you go. Ice cream kills people. Booyah. You know, CDC's burying the facts, right? So it's very, very easy to distort the information that's available. And if you have a conclusion in place already, you can find a, you can find evidence to support it and you can build a plausible story that will convince some people. Um, but that's again, right. Yeah. So, I mean, your, your thoughts again, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get those. Yeah. So no, I think that, that that's exactly right. There, there, you can, you can find whatever you look for to confirm your initial bias in your, in your narrative. And you can, um, you, you can, if you're adept at communicating, you can you can communicate actually misinformation that leads people to believe that something is actually wrong with a medicine or with a chemical or um, and you can pull things out of thin air um, and really, really amplify that. And unfortunately, that's what's happened with the anti-vaccine movement. And once again, vaccines are also one of the you know cornerstones of public health in, in the 20th century that bought us a 30 year increase in life expectancy. And so this has actually drifted um, into the the overall, not just COVID, but overall vaccine um, hesitancy. And more and more people are having questions about uh, vaccines that will actually were prevent diseases of childhood that actually killed kids. So um, it, it's very concerning to see uh, these uh, these these kind of narratives go out. Yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating. I, I discovered this personally when uh, my son was born a couple of years ago. We had family. It wasn't related to the COVID shot, but we had family. They would not get a Tdap booster, um, which was recommended to be around a newborn. They just they just would not do it, of course. And again, as we'll talk about in a minute, they're happy to consume alcohol. They're happy to take different prescriptions that are just as powerful as a vaccine. But no, 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 we're not taking this. You know, so it's like this has real consequences. And we'll talk some other time about how I navigated that because it's an interesting story. But this is like this is what happens, right? Is the silliness comes out on the internet and people are convinced by it and it puts others at risk, you know. So this is a real problem. And I think that's what's so frustrating about this study is that this this economist, he says, Oh, well, these people knew someone who who got sick and died as a result of the vaccine. That's not how you confirm anything in your life, right? Like you wouldn't make a decision about. <laughs> You know, like who's going to do your taxes based on like, oh, I know this one guy who knows another guy who had a really bad experience with this guy. So don't you know what I mean? Like even for something yeah. as simple, you wouldn't do that. Um, right. but, but here it's like, oh, yeah, for a major medical diagnosis, that's really controversial. And, you know, it's going to scare people. And if it's true, it should be reported. But right. This is just this is just anecdotal on on a mass scale. Yeah, this is this yeah. is the same thing. This is a, I. A, this is a multiple people, without any kind of validation or follow up, um, telling an, an anecdote. And this is and the, and that's all compiled. And then it's not even just those people because this was what twenty eight hundred people or twenty four hundred people yeah. that were. So it's it, it, he extrapolated on that. So to to so that was so you've got unconfirmed stories and then building he built a model to extrapolate. Uh, the potential number of people who were impacted by this. We would notice 
if 300,000 people died of a vaccine-related uh, injury. We would notice that. That's the, yeah. I mean, they, they've noticed the signal on myocarditis, and they've noticed the signal on clots. And so they've, it, 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 and those are related to different vaccinations, right? right. So th- that, that actually, that, that actually got followed up on because they noticed those signals. If 300,000 people were dropping dead right, left, and center, that, that our, our emergency rooms would be overwhelmed. And, and, and it, that's just not what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. And one thing I, I wanted to add is that these, these various reports, these vaccine ad- adverse event reporting system reports that come in that everyone loves to talk about, these are followed up on. And, and cause the first vaccine was approved in December, 2020 was the Pfizer shot. And within three or four months, there were follow-up studies by scientists all over the world, different universities, different, di- you know, different, like they're affiliated with public health institutions and so forth. And they go back into the VAERS database and they actually try to confirm these cases, right? So they look at them, they follow up. There's other reporting systems that are active, like, like medical records and insurance claims and so forth. So when you when you follow up on these, you find what Liza is saying, which is that these are mostly, sometimes the signal is real, but it's not widespread. And most of these are not related to the vaccines. And I, it's just, I've pointed this out in stories that I've written before, but it's really funny because the VAERS reports come out Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his cohorts make a big deal about it. And then the studies that are that are done looking at these, they go, well, not really, right? This is not a problem. That study doesn't get a lot of a lot of press. And then more VAERS reports come in. They go, look at all these reports. And then those get followed up on. Wash, rinse, repeat, right? It's just it's- that's, that's right. That's exactly right. The problem with VAERS is that anybody can report. So it may yeah. be that there's somebody who thinks there's a vaccine-related thing, um, but it's not. Or, you know, there have been cases that have been reported with somebody who's had got widely metastatic cancer um, already and then gets the vaccine and that that's called in as a vaccine injury, whereas it's actually a natural death from cancer. So, you know, there can be a whole variety of people um, reporting to those things um, for a variety of reasons. Some some have some are legit and some are concerned. Some are the worried people who want to make sure that it's being captured, but some also want to create um, could create consternation around the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really frustrating. Again, as a parent, a new parent, this it makes me mad now, <laughs> you know, because before it was just this abstract kind of like, well, those people are weird, but I don't have to deal with them. Now all of a sudden it's like, you got to deal with it. So anyways, it's, it's just good to, to, again, look at the study, look at the issues that are being discussed. Um, as Liza said on a different occasion, look at the tables. You don't have to read all the math, but look at the tables where the results are. And that'll tell you pretty quickly, is this a real result or are they not fudging is the wrong word, but are they trying to make something that really isn't here? You know, read the discussion section of the paper. Um, and it, and it is. It's a little time consuming. It's a little irritating. But if you want to understand these issues, that's what you have to do. You just can't rely that's on. You have to, yeah. You will be surprised at the number of claims that you find in the abstracts, in the title, and in the actual body of the text that do not align with what their data actually shows. So if yes. you go look at the pixels, you can you can go, oh wow. And then you, then you bypass a lot of the complicated discussion in the methods section where you're trying to figure out. How, which test they use? Was it validated? Was it, you know, reproducible? All that kind of stuff. And that gets to be very dense reading. Go look at the tables and see if the tables say what they say they say. Yes. 
Yeah. And this is this is a great transition into our last story. This was an article by Dr. Josh Bloom at the American Council on Science and Health. Uh, he's a chemist and he's been writing about these these different public health concerns, these chemical scares for most of his career. Uh, and in this story, which is uh, he says, let me, let me make sure I got the title right here. I love it. He says people spread chemophobic drivel about dangerous chemicals that science says are safe as used. And then they continue to drink alcohol. So his point here is that these these studies, these epidemiological studies come out and they find a very, very tiny association. It, it may be statistically significant, meaning it's more likely real than not real but it's not clinically significant, you know? So you may find that people who are exposed to a chemical like BPA, which is used to make some plastics, food contact uh, containers, water bottles, uh, receipt paper, and so forth. There's a very slight association between exposure to this chemical and insert health condition here, right? There's lots of studies like that, but the problem for, again, for all the study reasons we talked about in the ice cream story, these results have not been borne out by reality. But they get in the headlines, people hear about them, you get new parents, they go, but I don't want to poison my kid with BPA. This is scary. How do I, you know, help me, right? It freaks people out. But then at the end of the day, they kick up their feet and then they drink a beer or they, or they have a cocktail. And of course, alcohol, as Liza can explain in more detail, is a very well-known carcinogen, right? You have to drink a lot of it over an extended period to really see that effect, but you can get cancer from consuming enough alcohol and people just really are terrible at assessing these relative risks. Same thing with driving and flying, you know, you're more likely to die in a car. Uh, flying is, is probably the safest mode of transportation, but people drive down the road, right? Right. Texting and driving. Got it. Oh, got to make sure my Twitter's, you know, did I get any likes on my posts? Right. So it's, it's just really funny. So what, what are your thoughts on this story? So my thoughts on this are, once again, the dose makes a poison and little tiny trace things are not going to bother you at all. Things that are found in point parts per trillion are, are so minute that they're not going to hurt you. And how, how do I know this? Uh, well, because, you know, it's a principle of toxic. It's one of the foundation you know, principles of toxicology, right? So if you have a little, little teeny tiny trace of uh, BPA in the in the, the plastic device that you're drinking your Budweiser out of or your 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 alcohol out of you are you, you've got much more of a higher concentration of a thing that is an actual carcinogen versus a thing that is is not right so mm -hmm. alcohol is a carcinogen um, and we know that and it's a dose response thing right trace 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 findings of other chemistries in your drink are not going to be um that big of a, a problem now for it, it it i guess the case in point that i'd like to make really is that um we take the most potent toxin known to mankind and routinely injected into our faces for cosmetic purposes and how can we do that and how do we know that that's okay to do well the reason why you can safely inject botox in your face is because um, of the regulatory apparatus around it it is so well regulated and it has been so rigorously studied that we know that if you follow the label you won't have any trouble um, with that, you'll you'll be more beautiful, right? Um, and and that botulinum toxin is one of the most, if not, it is the most potent toxin known to mankind. And nanograms will kill you. 
and will kill grown adults. Um, in fact, we had a patient um, from, who had showed up in New Jersey in an emergency room with a rapidly descending paralysis, and she had been at a Botox party with her boyfriend who had bought research-grade botulinum toxin, the real stuff, the potent stuff, the strong stuff. And she wound up in the ICU paralyzed all the way down to one big toe that was the only thing that could move from November until May with a tracheostomy tube going into her throat so she could breathe and a G-tube going into her stomach so she could have nutrition. And so that tells you how potent this toxin is, right? Um, and it's really, really, uh, it's really, really useful, not just for cosmetic purposes, but also for, you know, neuromuscular problems that like cerebral palsy and things like that. People use um, the botulinum toxin um, as, as directed um, and as formulated by, um, you know, and, and, and as stewarded by the companies and, and regulatory agencies. So once again, dose is poison. Um, tiny, tiny traces of, of uh, chemistries that are beneficial to mankind are not going to hurt you. Um, they've, been, they've been tested rigorously, um, and those tests have all been evaluated by the regulatory agencies. And those te the, the, the testing itself can cost anywhere between a quarter of a billion to a billion dollars, depending on the, the substance. Um, and it takes 10 or 15 years of tests that are audited, validated, uh, reviewed, repeated, and uh, any adverse re reactions are reportable by law to the regulatory agencies. These tests are called good laboratory practice studies. So if you've got GLP studies and you've got, you know, a robust regulatory environment like we do, we've got the model a regulatory agency for the world for drug approvals with the FDA. Um, the FDA is the reason why we kept thalidomide out of the market, causing the terrible birth defects and things like that. And so there are times when the regulatory agencies may get frustrating, um, but they're there for your protection. And um, they are, in, you know, they're, they're, you can tweak them, but completely undermining them actually puts patients in human safety at risk. Yeah, it really does. It's and it's it's a good point, especially with these plastics, because they keep bacteria out of your food and they prevent That's food right. food waste, right? So, um, and some of these are deadly. You know, like some of these bacterial infections can kill you. And if you get one anyway and you survive, it's unpleasant, right? It's just not good. Yeah. Your your gastrointestinal tract will be really mad at you if you your microbiome your microbiome gets yeah. thrown off a lot of these bacteria. Yeah, that's a really good point. So as we wrap up here, read read Josh Bloom's article. He goes over the FDA data. They did a two year study in 2018. He also talks about how the the conclusion of a study that was published last year did not match the results, right? So he went down to the tables and he said, okay. Well, that result's not statistically significant. The confidence interval is like this big. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so you guys can look that up later. But basically, it means that the result is not is not valid. There's just no way to know. You throw darts at a dartboard, and you could get the same data set. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna land the plane here. Thank you so much. Liza's gonna be back next week because Kevin's off being a new dad. So I'm looking forward to some more discussions. But in the meantime, give people your Twitter handle because you're very active. You'll talk to people. As I mentioned, you you argue with anti-vax people, and I think that's great. A lot of people don't do that. So, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Dr. Liza MD. Please follow me, and um, I'd I'll love to answer any questions. 
Very good. All right. Well, I am uh, I'm at Cam J English. I'm not nearly as smart, but I'll answer questions if I can. If you want to talk about the show or make a recommendation for something to talk about, always happy to uh, to do that. Uh, at Genetic Literacy on Twitter because they put this whole thing on for us. And with that, we will see you next week for two sixteen. See you later. <laughs>